This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue. Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. Instrumental Music in the Public Worship of the Church, a collection of short quotes, as read by Samantha Elosais. These first quotes are taken from Instrumental Music in the Worship of the Church by John Gerardo. Quote 1 is from Jonathan Edwards, Charity and Its Fruits, pages 57 and 58. Quote, Whatever is done or suffered, yet if the heart is withheld from God, there is nothing really given to him. The act of the individual in what he does or suffers is in every case looked upon, not as the act of a lifeless engine or machine, but as the act of an intelligent, voluntary, moral being. For surely a machine is not properly capable of giving anything, and if any such machine that is without life, being moved by springs or weights, places anything before us, it cannot properly be said to give it to us. Harps and cymbals and other instruments of music were of old made use of in praising God in the temple and elsewhere. But these lifeless instruments could not be said to give praise to God because they had no thought, nor understanding, or will, or heart to give value to their pleasant sounds. And so, though a man has a heart and an understanding and a will, yet if, when he gives anything to God, he gives it without his heart, there is no more truly given to God than is given by the instrument of music." End of quote. Quote number two is from David Calderwood, The Pastor and the Prelate, 1628, page 27 of the Philadelphia 1844 edition. Quote, The pastor loveth no music in the house of God, but such as edifieth and stoppeth his ears at instrumental music, as serving for the pedagogy of the untoward Jews under the law, and being figurative of that spiritual joy whereunto our hearts should be opened under the gospel. The prelate loveth carnal and curious singing to the ear more than the spiritual melody of the gospel, and therefore would have antiphony and organs in the cathedral kirks upon no greater reason than other shadows of the law of Moses, or lesser instruments as lutes, citherns, or pipes might be used in other kirks. End of quote. Quote number three, from John Owen, 
taken from an exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews, Volume 5, pages 413 and 414. Quote, there is also an especial joy belonging unto this gospel state, for this kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Neither was this attainable by the Levitical priesthood. Indeed, many of the saints of the Old Testament did greatly rejoice in the Lord and had the joy of his salvation abiding with them. See Psalm 51 verse 12, Isaiah 25 verse 9, and Habakkuk 3, verse 17 and 18. But they had it not by virtue of the Levitical priesthood. Isaiah tells us that the ground of it was the swallowing up of death in victory, chapter 25, verse 8, which was no otherwise to be done but by the death and resurrection of Christ. It was by an influence of efficacy from the priesthood that was to be introduced that they had their joy, whence, Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced to see it. The prospect of the day of Christ was the sole foundation of all their spiritual joy that was purely so. But as unto their own present state, they were allowed and called to rejoice in the abundance of temporal things. Though the psalmist, in a spirit of prophecy, prefers the joy arising from the light of God's countenance in Christ above all of that sort. Psalm 4, verse 6 and 7. But ordinarily their joy was mixed and alloyed with a respect unto temporal things. See Leviticus 23, verse 39 to 41, Deuteronomy 12, verse 11, 12, and 18, and also Deuteronomy 16, verse 11, and 27, verse 7. This was the end of their annual festivals, and those who would introduce such festival rejoicing into the gospel state do so, so far degenerate into Judaism as preferring their natural joy in the outward manner of expression before the spiritual, ineffable joys of the gospel. This it is that belongs unto the state thereof, such a joy in the Lord as carrieth believers with a holy triumph through every condition, even when all outward causes of joy do fail and cease. A joy it is unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 See also John 15, verse 11, Romans 15, verse 13, and Jude 24. It is that inexpressible satisfaction which is wrought in the minds of believers by the Holy Ghost from an evidence of their interest in the love of God by Christ with all the fruits of it, present and to come, with a spiritual sense and experience of their value, worth, and excellency. This gives the soul a quiet repose in all its trials, refreshment when it is weary, peace in trouble, and the highest satisfaction in the hardest things that are to be undergone for the profession of the name of Christ. Romans 5, verse 1-5 End of quote. Quote number 4 from John Owen, An Exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews, Volume 6, pages 22 and 23. Quote, the church has lost nothing by the removal of the old tabernacle and temple, all being supplied by this sanctuary, true tabernacle, and minister thereof. The glory and worship of the temple was that which the Jews would by no means part with all. They chose rather to reject Christ and the gospel than to part with the temple and its outward pompous worship. 
And it is almost incredible how the vain mind of man is addicted unto an outward beauty and splendor in religious worship. Take it away, and with the most you destroy all religion itself, as if there were no beauty but in paintings, no evidence of health or vigor of body, but in warts and wens. The Christians of old suffered in nothing more from the prejudice of the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, than in this, that they had a religion without temples, altars, images, or any solemnity of worship. And in later ages, men ceased not until they had brought into Christianity itself a worship vying for external order, ceremony, pomp, and painting with whatever was in the tabernacle or temple of old, coming short of it principally in this, that that was of God's institution for a time, this of the invention of weak, superstitious, and foolish men. Thus it is in the church of Rome, and a hard thing it is to raise the minds of men unto a satisfaction in things merely spiritual and heavenly. They suppose they cannot make a worse change, nor more to their disadvantage, than to part with what is a present object in entertainment unto their senses, fancies, carnal affections, and superstitions, for that which they can have no benefit by, nor satisfaction in, but only in the exercise of faith and love, inclining us to that within the veil. Hence is there at this day so great a contest in the world about tabernacles and temples, modes of worship and ceremony, that men have found out in the room of them which they cannot deny but God would have removed. For so they judge that he will be satisfied with their carnal ordinances in the church, when the time is come that he would bear his own no longer. But unto them that believe Christ is precious. And this true tabernacle, with his ministration, is more unto them than all the old pompous ceremonies and services of divine institution, much more the superstitious observances of human invention. End of quote. Quote number five, from David Dixon, on a, a commentary on the Psalms, volume 2, page 150, on Psalm 92, verse 3. Quote, As it is the duty of everyone to study, to observe, and believe, and to be sensibly affected with the Lord's mercy and truth, so also to express their belief and sense thereof cheerfully and joyfully, according as the signification of typical ceremonies of musical instruments under the pedagogy of the law required. It is good to show forth by loving kindness, etc., upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery, upon the harp, with a solemn sound. From volume 2, page 532, on Psalm 149, verse 3, The joy of the believer is a great and growing joy, arising from rejoicing in the former verse to exulting in this verse, signified by dancing. Let them praise his name in the dance. The joy of the godly is a complete joy, employing all and filling all the powers of the soul, signified by musical instruments used in the pedagogy of the old church. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. From Volume 2, pages 536 and 537, on Psalm 150, verse 3 through 5. 
Here are other six exhortations teaching the manner of praising God under the shadow of typical music appointed in the ceremonial law. Whence learn, albeit, the typical ceremonies of musical instruments in God's public worship belonging to the pedagogy of the church in her minority before Christ be now abolished with the rest of, her cere- rest of the ceremonies. Yet the moral duties showed forth, shadowed forth by them are still to be studied because this duty of praising God and praising Him with all our mind, strength, and soul is moral whereunto we are perpetually obliged. The variety of musical instruments, some of them made use of in the camp as trumpets, some of them more suitable to a peaceable condition as psalteries and harps, some of them sounded by blowing wind to them, some of them sounding by lighter touching of them as stringed instruments, some of them by beating on them more sharply as trebrets, drums, and cymbals, some of them sounded by touching and blowing also as organs, all of them giving some certain sound, some more quiet and some making more noise, some of them having a harmony by themselves, some of them making a concert with other instruments or with the motions of the body in dancing, some of them serving for one use, some of them serving for another, and all of them serving to set forth God's glory and to shadow forth the duty of worshippers and the privileges of the saints. The plurality and variety, I say, of these instruments were fit to represent diverse conditions of the spiritual man and of the greatness of his joy to be found in God and to teach what stirring up should be of the affections and powers of our souls and one of another unto God's worship. What harmony should be among the worshippers of God, what melody each should make in himself, singing to God with grace in his heart and to show the excellence of God's praise which no means, nor instrument, nor expression of the body joined thereunto could sufficiently set forth. And thus, much is figured forth in these exhortations to praise God with trumpet, psaltery, harp, timbrel, dance, stringed instruments and organs, loud and high-sounding cymbals. End of quote. Quote number six from John Calvin. Commentary on the Book of Psalms, Volume 3, pages 494 and 495, on Psalm 92, verse 4. In the fourth verse, he more immediately addresses the Levites, who were appointed to the office of singers, and calls upon them to employ their instruments of music, not as, this, not as if this were in itself necessary, only it was useful as an elementary aid to the people of God in these ancient times. We are not to conceive that God enjoined the harp as feeling a delight like ourselves in mere melody of sounds, but the Jews who were yet under age were restricted to the use of such childish elements. The intention of them was to stimulate the worshippers and stir them up more actively to the celebration of the praise of God with the heart. We are to remember that the worship of God was never understood to consist in such outward services which were only necessary to help forward a people as yet weak and rude in knowledge in the spiritual worship of God. A difference is to be observed in this respect between his people under the Old and under the New Testament, for now that Christ has appeared and the church has reached full age, it were only to bury the light of the gospel 
should we introduce the shadows of a departed dispensation. From this it appears that the Papists, as I shall have occasion to show elsewhere, in employing instrumental music cannot be said so much to imitate the practice of God's ancient people as to ape it in a senseless and absurd manner, exhibiting a silly delight in that worship of the Old Testament which was figurative and terminated with the Gospel. End of quote. Quote number seven from Samuel Rutherford, The Divine Right of Church Government and Excommunication, London, 1646, page 136. Quote, Margin, The Spirit worketh not with ceremonies. Lastly, God's Spirit worketh not with ceremonies, and so they are as the offering of swine's blood and the slaying of a man, and so abomination to God. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit is merited to us by Christ. John 16, verse 14. He shall receive of mine and show unto you. But who can say that the grace of joy in the Holy Ghost, wrought by the droning of organs and the holiness taught by surplice, is a work of the Spirit merited by Christ as our High Priest? God hath made no promise that he will work by ceremonies, for the Spirit worketh not without the Word. So then, I might resist the working of the Spirit, and not sin against the Word. And this is Anabaptist's enthusiasm. If God work not by them, they be vain and fruitless. And the idol is unlawful for this, that it profiteth not. Also, the Spirit's action is either natural or supernatural here. If natural, it is a natural work and a natural spirit, and to be rejected. If supernatural, we may devise means to produce supernatural effects. Men's ceremonies can produce supernatural joy, comfort, peace, and acts of grace purchased to us by Christ's merit. This is a miracle. From pages 142 and 143, Quote, Margin, Jewish and Popish ceremonies are professions of a false religion. Also, whatever is a profession in fact of a false religion by ceremonies indifferent and yet proper to a false religion is a denying of the true religion, but the using of these ceremonies used by Papists and Jews is such. Ergo, the proposition is Scripture, Galatians 2, verse 14. Peter lived after the manner of the Jews in using the religious material of the Jews, though he had no Jewish intention or opinion. Yea, Acts 10, he disputeth against that. So circumcision, Galatians 6, verse 14 and 15, is put for the Jewish church. Now altars, organs, Jewish ephods, or surplice, mass clothes, and Romish crossing, bowing to altars, images, are badges of Jewish and Popish religion. End of quote. Quote number eight. From the records of the Kirk of Scotland containing the acts and proceedings of the General Assembly from the year 1638 downwards by Alexander Peterkin, Edinburgh, Berg, 1838, pages 400 and 401. Quote, May 4, 1644, the letter from the commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, 
to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. As we cannot but admire the good hand of God in the great things done here already, particularly that the covenant, the foundation of the whole work, is taken, prelacy and the whole train of their, thereof extirpated, the service book in many places forsaken, plain and powerful preaching set up, many colleges in Cambridge provided with such ministers as are most zealous of the best reformation, altars removed, the communion in some places given at the table with sitting, the great organs at Paul's and of Peter's in Westminster taken down, images and many other monuments of idolatry defaced and abolished, the chapel royal at Whitehall purged and reformed, and all by authority in a quiet manner at noonday without tumult, so have we from so notable experience joined with the promises of the word sufficient ground of confidence that God will perfect this work against all opposition and of encouragement for us all to be had to be faithful in the work of God which is carried on by his mighty hand that no man can oppose it but he must be seen fighting against God signed by Alexander Henderson Samuel Rutherford Robert Bailey George Gillespie and John Maitland end of quote Quote number nine, a quote from Gerardo himself, The Heresy of Instrumental Music in Public Worship. Quote, With reference to the time when organs were first introduced into, the use of, in the, into use in the Roman Catholic Church, let us now hear Bingham, quoted from his works, volume 3, page 137, FF. It is now generally agreed among learned men that the use of organs came into the church since the time of Thomas Aquinas, anno 1250, for he, in his sums, has these words. Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God with all, that she may not seem to Judaize. Mr. Wharton has also observed that Marina Sanitas, who lived about the year 1290, was the first who brought the use of wind organs into churches, whence he was named Torcellus, which is the name for an organ in the Italian tongue. Let us pause a moment to notice the fact, supported by a mass of incontrovertible evidence, that the Christian Church did not employ instrumental music in its public worship for 1,200 years after Christ. It deserves serious consideration, moreover, that notwithstanding the ever-accelerated drift towards corruption in worship, as well as in doctrine and government, the Roman Catholic Church did not adopt this corrupt practice until about the middle of the 13th century. When the organ was introduced into its worship, it encountered strong opposition and made its way but slowly to general acceptance. These assuredly are facts that should profoundly impress Protestant churches. How can they adopt a practice which the Roman Church in the year 1200 had not admitted? Then came the Reformation, and the question arises, how did the Reformers deal with the instrumental music in the Church? Zwingle has already been quoted to show instrumental music was one of the shadows of the old law which had been realized in the Gospel. He pronounced its employment in the present dispensation wicked pervicacity. There is no doubt in regard to his views on the subject which were adopted by the Swiss Reformed Churches. 
Calvin is very express in his condemnation of instrumental music in connection with the public worship of the church. In his homily on 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 through 9, he delivers himself emphatically and solemnly upon the subject. In Popery there was a ridiculous and unsuitable imitation of the Jews. While they adorned their temples and valued themselves as having made the worship of God more splendid and inviting, they employed organs and many other such ludicrous things by which the word and worship of God are exceedingly profaned, the people being much more attached to those rites than to the understanding of the divine word. Whatever may be the practice in recent times of the churches of Holland, the synods of the Reformed Dutch Church soon after the Reformation, pronounced very decidedly against the use of instrumental music in public worship. The National Synod at Middleburg in 1581 declared against it, and the Synod of Holland and Zealand in 1594 adopted this strong resolution, that they would endeavor to obtain of the magistrate the laying aside of organs and the singing with them in the churches. The Provincial Synod of Dort also invades severely against their use. The Reverend Charles Spurgeon upholds an, ap- an apple apostolic simplicity of worship. The great congregation which is blessed with the privilege of listening to his instructions has no organ to assist them in singing. The non-prelatic churches, Independent and Presbyterian, began their development on the American continent without instrumental music. They followed the English Puritans and the Scottish Church, which had adopted the principles of the Calvinistic Reformed Church. It has thus been proved by an appeal to historical facts that the Church, although lapsing more and more into defection from the truth and into a corruption of apostolic practice, had no instrumental music for 1,200 years, and that the Calvinistic Reformed Church ejected it from its services as an element of popery even the Church of England having come very nigh to its extrusion from her worship. The the historical argument, therefore, combines with the scriptural and the confessional to raise a solemn and powerful protest against its employment by the Presbyterian Church. It is heresy in the sphere of worship. End of quote. Quote number 10 from John Owen's book the Chamber of Imagery in the Church of Rome Laid Open, or An Antidote Against Popery, from Sermons to the Nations in Works, Volume 8, Banner of Truth, Reprint, pages 558-560. through 560. Quote, But there is a spiritual light required that we may discern the glory of this worship and have thereby an experience of its power and efficacy in reference unto the end of its appointment. This the church of believers hath. They see it as it is a blessed means of giving glory unto God and of receiving gracious communications from Him, which are the ends of all divine institutions of worship. And they have therein such an experience of its efficacy as as gives rest and peace and satisfaction unto their souls. For they find that as their worship directs them unto a blessed view by faith, of God in his ineffable existence with the glorious actings of each person in the dispensation of grace which fills their hearts with joy unspeakable 
so also that all graces are exercised, increased, and strengthened in the observance of it with love and delight. But all light into, all perceptions of this glory, all experience of its power, was amongst the most lost in the world. I intend in all these instances the time of the papal apostasy. Those who had the conduct of religion could discern no glory in these times, nor abstain any experience of their power. Be the worship what it will, they can see no glory in it, nor did it give any satisfaction to their minds. For having no light to discern its glory, they could have no experience of its power and efficacy. What then shall they do? The notion must be retained that divine worship is to be beautiful and glorious. But in the spiritual worship of the gospel they could see nothing thereof. Wherefore, they thought necessary to make a glory for it, or to dismiss it out of the world and set up such an image of it as might appear beautiful unto their fleshly minds and give them satisfaction. To this end, they set their inventions on work to find out ceremonies, vestments, gestures, ornaments, music, altars, images, paintings, with prescriptions of great bodily veneration. This pageantry they call the beauty, the order, the glory of divine worship. This is that which they see and feel, and which, as they judge, doth dispose their minds unto devotion. Without it, they know not how to pay any reverence unto God himself, and when it is wanting, whatever be the life, the power, the spirituality of the worship in the worshippers, whatever be its efficacy unto all the proper ends of it, however it be ordered according to the prescription of the word, it is unto them empty, indecent. They can see neither beauty nor glory in it. This light and experience being lost, the introduction of beggarly elements and carnal ceremonies in the worship of the church, with attempts to render it decorous and beautiful by superstitious rites and observances, wherewith it hath been defiled and corrupted, as it was and is in the church of Rome, was nothing but the setting up of a deformed image in the room of it. And this they are pleased with all the beauty and glory which carving and painting and embroidered vestures and musical incantations and postures of veneration do give unto divine service they can see and feel, and in their own imagination are sensibly excited unto devotion by them. But hereby, instead of representing the true glory of the worship of the gospel, wherein it, it excels under the Old Testament, they have rendered it altogether inglorious in comparison of it. For all the ceremonies and ornaments which they have invented for that end come unspeakably short for beauty, order, and glory of what was appointed by God himself in the temple, scarce equaling what was among the pagans. It will be said that the things whereunto we assign the glory of this worship are spiritual and, and invisible. Now this is not that which is inquired after, but that whose beauty we may behold and be affected with. And this may consist in the things which we decry, at least in some of them. Though I must say, if there be glory in any of them, the more they are multiplied, the better it must needs be. But this is that which we plead. Men, being not able by the light of faith to discern the glory of things spiritual and invisible, do make images of them unto themselves as gods that may go before them. And these they are affected with all 
But the worship of the church is spiritual, and the glory of it is invisible unto eyes of flesh. So both our Savior and the apostles do testify in the celebration of it. We are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Hebrews 12, verse 22 through 24. The glory of this assembly, though certainly above that of organs and pipes and crucifixes and vestments, yet doth not appear unto the sense or imagination of men. That which I design here is to obviate the meretricious allurements of the Roman worship and the pretenses of its efficacy to excite devotion and veneration by its beauty and decency. The whole of it is but a deformed image of that glory which they cannot behold. To obtain and preserve in our hearts an experience of the power and efficacy of that worship of God which is in spirit and in truth, as unto all the real ends of divine worship, is that alone which will secure us. Whilst we do retain right notions of the proper object of gospel worship, and of our immediate approach by it thereunto, of the way and manner of that approach, through the mediation of Christ and assistance of the Spirit, whilst we keep up faith and love unto their due exercise of it, wherein on our part this life of it doth consist, preserving an experience of the spiritual benefit and advantage, and advantage which we receive thereby, we shall not easily be inveigled to relinquish them all and give up ourselves to the embraces of this lifeless image. End of quote. Quote number 11, taken from the Reformation Observer, Portland, Oregon, USA, Volume 1, Number 2. Quote, Again, although the practice of the Levitical elements has most certainly been abolished by God, the usefulness of their knowledge has not been. It is most sad to see the confusion which exists when these are confounded, some, acknowledging the usefulness of the knowledge of these symbolical things, falsely conclude that they may appropriate the practice of them into evangelical worship. This type of thinking is usually motivated by a desire for musical instrumentation, etc., in evangelical worship. This appropriation is without command, inference, or example as being an element of the new covenant cultus. They suppose that these things assist their worship because they make a pleasant impression on them, which they assume is a devotional spirit. This impression, however, may be nothing more than a sensuous pleasing of their constitutional nature, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 through 23, which may counterfeit as a spirit-caused impression on their souls. Similar arguments have been forwarded by advocates of images and statues for assistance in worship. In this case, the only thing that can hold back the introduction of incense, censers, the erection of altars, the lighting of candles, and other various abominations into Christian worship is human authority. Such an authority is insufficient as a glance at Rome confirms. 
Others, on the other hand, belittle the cognitive value of these Levitical elements because of the abrogation of their practice and therefore conclude that it is necessary, since God has not given us a New Testament songbook, to take it upon themselves to introduce uninspired compositions into evangelical worship. The inference they make is that God has delegated to the will of uninspired men the accomplishment of what he voluntarily left incomplete. This type of inference, besides being incipient liberalism, is characterized by a dispensational type of mindset. It overemphasizes the discontinuities between the Testaments because it refuses to see the solidarity of God's work in redemptive history. They cannot, therefore, appreciate the sufficiency of God's Psalter. These two opposite perspectives, however, meet in the fact that they, at least by their actions, deny the sufficiency and final authority of the Word of God for directing Christian worship. Today, the idea of Christian worship is generally amorphous. Christians may have a definite idea what they are saved from, but the worship which they are saved to in this life is often only the nebulous result of human wisdom. History shows it has not always been so. By God's blessing, may history repeat itself in this regard. End of quote. Quote number 12. A short pamphlet entitled Worship, The Regulative Principle of Worship in History by Reg Barrow. The acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 21, Section 1 what things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor d diminish from it. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32 But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, verse 9 Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6. It was an amazing discovery to read for the first time of the regulative principle of worship about a year ago. Footnote. Fred DeLella, while visiting Edmonton, had lent me his copy of The Scriptural Law of Worship by Carl Bogue, published by Presbyterian Heritage Publications, 1988, which I eagerly devoured, my journey towards the Presbyterian Puritan view of worship having finally begun. End of footnote. This was over ten years after my eyes had been opened to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also after having spent a number of years in a Bible Presbyterian church, in which I had never even once heard this great controlling principle mentioned. Footnote, I later found out 
that some of the elders of the Bible Presbyterian Church, of that particular one, had never heard of the regulative principle either. End of footnote. Sadly, this was also after a number of debates had taken place in this church over music and liturgy, all of which could have easily been settled by an appeal to the confessional standards that the Bible Presbyterian Church elders had vowed to uphold, that is, the Westminster Confession of Faith. The sufficiency of the Westminster Confession of Faith in this area can be easily illustrated, especially concerning the use of instrumental music in public worship by a quotation from pages 31 and 32 of James Begg's book, Anarchy in Worship, footnote, available from Stillwater's Revival Books, end of footnote. Quote, When we come down to the Westminster Assembly, by which our present standards were framed, it is unnecessary to repeat, to repeat how clearly these standards embody the same principle, that is, that pure and acceptable worship must be prescribed or appointed by God himself. But it may be important to bring out the clear evidence which we have that during the Second Reformation our ancestors insisted on uniformity of worship and the commissioners at Westminster and the Assembly in Scotland regarded their principle of worship as clearly excluding instrumental music and all other things abolished along with the peculiarities of the temple service. By an act of the Assembly of Scotland, 1643, a directory for worship was appointed to be prepared and reported to the next assembly, to the intent that uniformity and unity might be observed throughout the kingdom in all parts of the public worship of God. Our commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, including the most eminent ecclesiastics then in Scotland, reported on May 20, 1644, that plain and powerful preaching had been set up, and the great organs at Paul and Peter's in Westminster taken down, and all by authority in a quiet manner at noonday without tumult. In answer, the General Assembly here, June 4, 1644, writes to the Assembly at Westminster, We were greatly refreshed to hear by letter from our commissioners there with you of your praiseworthy proceedings, and of the great good things the Lord hath wrought among you and for you. Shall it seem a small thing in our eyes that the door of right entry unto faithful shepherds is opened? Many corruptions as altars, images, and other monuments of idolatry and superstition removed, defaced, and abolished, the service book in many places forsaken, and plain and powerful preaching set up, the great organs at Paul's and Peter's taken down, that the royal chapel is purged and reformed, sacraments sincerely administered, and according to the pattern in the mount? From this it is clear that the Westminster divines and our own church in those days would have made short work with the Duns case and with all questions of instrumental music in worship. This was certainly regarded as one of the last corruptions introduced dating only from about the 8th century and never having found admission into the Greek church at all. End of quote. At this point, some may be asking, what is this regulative principle? James Glasgow gives us a succinct answer. Quote, that principle was substantially this, that for all the constituents of worship, 
you require the positive sanction of the divine authority either in the shape of direct command or good and necessary consequence or approved example and that you are not at liberty to introduce anything else in connection with the worship of God unless it comes legitimately under the apostolic heading of decency and order. Quoted from Heart and Voice, Instrumental Music in Christian Worship Not Divinely Authorized, published in Belfast by Aitchison and Cleland, late 19th century, page 4. Also, this book is an exegetical treasure which demolishes what the Westminster divines, together with the whole Puritan party, called the badge of popery, that is, the innovation of introdu introducing instrumental music into public worship. After citing the instance of Begg's quote concerning the Westminster Assembly, Glasgow further illustrates this principle. They, that is, the Westminster divines, contended, I think unanswerably, that the truth of this principle is involved in what the scripture teaches concerning its own sufficiency, God's exclusive right to settle the constitution, laws, and arrangements of his kingdom, the unlawfulness of will worship, and the utter unfitness of men for the function which they have so often boldly usurped in this matter. Also quoted from Heart and Voice, Instrumental Music in Christian Worship Not Divinely Authorized. Of course, whole volumes have been written regarding this definition, but continuing on, in that this definition has been generally accepted among Presbyterian Puritan Christians, Cunningham sets the stage for more of our historical survey, while at the same time excluding the charge of trifling over inconsequential matters, when he writes, quote, There is a strange fallacy which seems to mislead men in forming an estimate of the soundness and importance of this principle, that is, the regulative principle. Because this principle has been often brought out in connection with the discussion of matters which viewed in themselves are very unimportant, such as rites and ceremonies, vestments and organs, crossings, kneelings, bowings, and other such inepte, some men think, seem to think that it partakes of the intrinsic littleness of these things and that the men who defend and try to enforce it find their most congenial occupation in fighting about these small matters and exhibit great bigotry and narrow-mindedness in bringing the authority of God and the testimony of Scripture to bear upon such a number of paltry points. Many have been led to entertain such views as these of the English Puritans and of the Scottish Presbyterians and very much upon the ground of their maintenance of this principle. Now, it should be quite sufficient to prevent or neutralize this impression to show, as we think can be done, first, that the principle is taught with sufficient plainness in Scripture, and that therefore it ought to be professed and applied to the regulation of ecclesiastical affairs. Second, that viewed in itself it is large, liberal, and comprehensive, such as seems in no way unbecoming its divine author, and in no way unsuitable to the dignity of the church as a divine institution, giving to God his rightful place of supremacy, and to the church as the body of Christ its rightful position of elevated simplicity and purity. Third, that when contemplated in connection with the ends of the church, 
It is in full accordance with everything suggested by an enlightened and searching survey of the tendencies of human nature and the testimony of all past experience. And with respect to the connection above referred to, on which the impression we are combating is chiefly based, it is surely plain that, insofar as it exists de facto, this is owing not to anything in in the tendencies of the principle itself, or of its supporters, but to the conduct of the men who, in defiance of this principle, would obtrude human inventions into the government and worship of the church, or who insist upon retaining them permanently after they have once got admittance. The principle suggests no rites or ceremonies, no schemes or arrangements. It is purely negative and prohibitionary. Its supporters never devise innovations and press them upon the church. The principle itself precludes this. It is the deniers of this principle, and they alone, who invent and obtrude innovations, and they are responsible for all the mischiefs that ensue from the discussions and contentions to which these things have given rise. Quoted from The Reformers and the Theology of the Reformation by William Cunningham Published in Edinburgh, Scotland, by Banner of Truth, 1862, and reprinted in 1989, pages 35 and 36. Now we can continue to to view the historical position that the Christian Church has, has taken regarding the regulative principle, with special emphasis on instrumental music. Concerning the early worship, Dr. N. R. Needham has written... The early church did not use instrumental music in its worship. They considered the practice as pagan or Jewish rather than Christian. Dr. Hughes Oliphant Old, in his work, The Patristic Roots of Reformed Worship, says, As is well known, the ancient church did not admit the use of instrumental music in worship. It was looked upon as a form of worship, which, like the sacrifices of the Jerusalem temple, prefigured the worship in spirit and truth. End of quote. This concern for the distinctiveness of New Testament worship and for spirituality as its central feature was typical of the early church fathers. In harmony with this, the situation in early church worship was one of plain or unaccompanied singing of psalms the use of musical instruments was rejected as contrary to the tradition of the apostles, a feature of sensuous pagan or Old Testament Jewish worship, but not of the spiritual Christian worship. Quoted from Musical Instruments in Worship, a historical survey from the Presbyterian, issue number 32, May 1990, pages 25 and 26. Continuing our walk through history and the instrument music example, we can observe how and by whom this principle has been greatly violated. Quote, With reference to the time when organs were first introduced into use in the Roman Catholic Church, let us hear Bingham. Gerardo cites Bingham's works, volume 3, page 137. Quote, It is now generally agreed among learned men that the use of organs came into the church since the time of Thomas Aquinas, anno 1250, for he, in his sums, has these words, 
Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God with all, that she may not seem to Judaize. Mr. Wharton also has observed that Marinus Sanatus, who lived about the year 1290, was the first who brought the use of wind organs into church, whence he was surnamed Torcellus, which is the name for an organ in the Italian tongue. Let us pause a moment to notice the fact supported by a mass of incontrovertible evidence that the Christian church did not employ instrumental music in its public worship for 1200 years after Christ. It deserves serious consideration, moreover, that notwithstanding the ever-accelerated drift towards corruption in worship, as well as in doctrine and government, the Roman Catholic Church did not adopt this corrupt practice until about the middle of the 13th century. When the organ was introduced into its worship, it encountered strong opposition and made its way but slowly to general acceptance. These, assuredly, are facts that should profoundly impress Protestant churches. How can they adopt a practice which the Roman Church, in the year 1200, had not admitted? Then came the Reformation, and the question arises, how did the Reformers deal with instrumental music in the Church? Zwingle has already been quoted to show instrumental music was one of the shadows of the old law which has been realized in the Gospel. He pronounces its employment in the present dispensation wicked, wicked pervicacity. There is no doubt in regard to his views on the subject which were adopted by the Swiss Reformed Churches. Calvin is very express in his condemnation of instrumental music in connection with the public worship of the Church. In his homily on 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 to 9, he delivers himself emphatically and solemnly upon the subject. In Popery there was a ridiculous and unsuitable imitation of the Jews. While they adorned their temples and valued themselves as having made the worship of God more splendid and inviting, they employed organs and many other such ludicrous things by which the word and worship of God are exceedingly profaned, the people being much more attached to those rites than to the understanding of the divine word. Whatever may be the practice in recent times of the churches in Hol of Holland, the synods of the Reformed Dutch Church soon after the Reformation pronounced very decidedly against the use of instrumental music in public worship. The National Synod at Middleburg in 1581 declared against it, and the Synod of Holland and Zealand in 1594 adopted this strong resolution that they would endeavor to obtain of the magistrate the laying aside of organs and the singing with them in the churches. The provincial synod of Dort also inveighed severely against their use. The Reverend Charles H. Spurgeon upholds an apostolic simplicity of worship. The great congregation which is blessed with the privilege of listening to his instructions has no organ to assist them in singing. The non-prelatic churches, independent and Presbyterian, began their development on the American continent without instrumental music. They followed the English Puritans in the Scottish Church, which had adopted the principles of the Calvinistic Reformed Church. It has thus been proved by an appeal to historical facts that the Church, although lapsing more and more into defection from the truth and into a corruption of apostolic practice, had no instrumental music for 1,200 years and that the Calvinistic Reformed Church ejected it from its services as an element of popery 
even the Church of England having come very nigh to its extrusion from her worship. The historical argument, therefore, combines with the scriptural and the confessional to raise a solemn and powerful protest against its employment by the Presbyterian Church. It is heresy in the sphere of worship. Quoted from John L. Gerardo, Instrumental Music in the Public Worship of the Church, published by New Covenant Publication Society, first in 1888 and reprinted in 1983, pages 158, 159, 161, 165, 170, and 179. Though our standard is unequivocally sola scriptura, the historical argument illustrates how a practice which was a very late corner to church practice, not to mention instituted by the Pope of Rome, has gained almost universal acceptance in our day of declension. Without strict adherence to the regulative principle, as historically exegeted and espoused by our Presbyterian and Puritan forefathers, the door to unscriptural innovation in worship is endless. The principle in worship is the equivalent of God's sovereignty in soteriology. That is, the Christian, humanists, Arminians, that is, try to ascribe salvation to their own wills and not to God's will as the Bible clearly proclaims in John 1 verse 13 and Romans 9. Similarly, the Bible condemns human invention in worship as will worship, Colossians 2 verse 23, the only acceptable worship being that which is mandated via God's own will as revealed in the scripture. Gerardo cites Calvin's commentary on the Psalms pinpointing the error in this particular practice and also exposing the source of many of the ecclesiastical abuses of worship that have crept into the modern church. Quote, To sing the praises of God upon the harp and psaltery, says Calvin, unquestionably formed a part of the training of the law and of the service of God under that dispensation of shadows and figures, but they are not now to be used in public thanksgiving quoted from Calvin on Psalm 71, verse 22. He says again, With respect to the tabret, harp, and psaltery, we have formerly observed and will find it necessary afterwards to repeat the same remark, that the Levites, under the law, were justified in making use of instrumental music in the, pu- in the worship of God, it, it having been his will to train his people while they were yet tender and like children, by such rudiments until the coming of Christ. But now, when the clear light of the gospel has dissipated the shadows of the law and taught us that God is to be served in a simpler form, it would be to act a foolish and mistaken part to imitate that which the prophet enjoined only upon those of his own time. Calvin on Psalm 81 verse 3 He further observes, that we are to remember that the worship of God was never understood to consist in such outward services which were only necessary to help forward a people as yet weak and rude in knowledge in the spiritual worship of God. A difference is to be observed in this respect between his people under the Old and under the New Testament. For now that Christ has appeared and the church has reached full age, It were only to bury the light of the gospel should we introduce the shadows of a departed dispensation. From this it appears that the papists, as I shall have occasion to show elsewhere, 
in employing instrumental music cannot be said so much to imitate the practice of God's ancient people as to ape it in a senseless and absurd manner exhibiting a silly delight in that worship of the Old Testament which was figurative and terminated with the gospel Calvin on Psalm 92 verse 1 all of Calvin cited in Gerardo instrumental music page 66 63 and 64 once again citing a lengthy section from Gerardo which ends the first chapter of his instrumental music in public worship entitled the general arguments from scripture we read quote the principle the regulative principle scripturally proved in the preceding 22 pages of this highly recommended book noted by Reg Barrow that has been emphasized is in direct opposition to that maintained by Romanists and Prelatists and I regret to say by lax Presbyterians that what is not forbidden in the scriptures is permitted the Church of England in her 20th article concedes to the Church a power to decree rites and ceremonies with this limitation alone upon its exercise that it is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's written word the principle of the discretionary power of the church in regard to things not commanded by Christ in his word was the chief fountain from which flowed the gradually increasing tide of corruptions that swept the Latin church into apostasy from the gospel of God's grace and as surely as causes produce their appropriate effect and history repeats itself in obedience to that law any Protestant church which embodies that principle in its creed is destined sooner or later to experience a similar fate the same too may be affirmed of a church which formally rejects it and practically conforms to it the reason is plain the only bridle that checks the degenerating tendency of the church a tendency manifested in all ages is the word of God for the spirit of grace himself ordinarily operates only in connection with that word if this restraint be discarded the downward lapse is sure the words of the great theologian John Owen and the British Isles have produced no greater are solemn and deserve to be seriously pondered quote the principle that the church has power to institute anything or ceremony but belonging to the worship of God either as to matter or manner beyond the observance of such circumstances as necessarily attend such ordinances as Christ himself has instituted lies at the bottom of all the horrible superstition and idolatry of all the confusion blood persecution and wars that have for so long a season spread themselves over the face of the Christian world end of quote in view of such considerations as these confirmed as they are by the facts of all past history it is easy to see how irrelevant and baseless is the taunt, taunt flung by high churchmen ritualists and latitudinarians of every stripe against the maintainers of the opposite principle that they are narrow-minded bigots who take delight in insisting upon trivial details the truth is exactly the other way the principle upon which this cheap ridicule is cast is simple broad majestic it affirms only the things that God has commanded the institutions and ordinances that he has prescribed and besides this 
discharges only a negative office which sweeps away every trifling invention of man of man's meretricious fancy. It is not the supporters of this principle but their opponents who delight in insisting upon crossings, genuflections and bowings to the east, upon vestments, altars and candles, upon organs and cornets, and the dear antiphonies that so bewitch their prelates and their chapters with the goodly echo they make. In fine, upon all that finical trumpery which inherited from the woman clothed in scarlet marks the trend backward to the Rubicon and the seven-hilled mart of souls. But whatever others may think or do, Presbyterians cannot forsake this principle without the guilt of defection from their own venerable standards and from the testimony sealed by the blood of their fathers. Among the principles that the Reformers extracted from the rubbish of corruption and held up to the light again, none were more comprehensive, far-reaching, and profoundly reforming than this. It struck at the root of every false doctrine and practice and demanded the restoration of the true. Germany has been infinitely the worse because of Luther's failure to apply it to the full. Calvin enforced it more fully. The great French Protestant Church, with the exception of retaining a liturgical relic of popery, gave it a grand application, and France suffered an irreparable loss when she degrooned almost out of existence the body that maintained it. John Knox stamped it upon the heart of the Scottish Church, and it constituted the glory of the English Puritans. Alas, that it is passing into decadence in the Presbyterian churches of England, Scotland, and America. What remains but those who still see it and cling to it as something dearer to life than life itself should continue to utter, however feebly, however inoperatively, their unchanging to a testimony to its truth? It is the Acropolis of the Church's liberties, the Palladium of her purity. That gone, nothing will be left to hope but to strain its gaze toward the dawn of the millennial day. Then we are entitled to expect a more thoroughgoing and glorious reformation will be effected than any that has blessed the Church and the world since the magnificent propagation of Christianity by the labors of the inspired apostles themselves. Quoted from Gerardo, Instrumental Music in the Public Worship, pages 23 through 26. So as not to leave myself open to the objection that little exegetical proof has been cited in this short newsletter format, I offer the following three considerations. First, it would be ridiculous to think that all, or even a slight percentage, of the testimonies herein adduced in favor of the regulative principle were reached on a basis other than intense scriptural exegesis. A close inspection of the sources cited in the footnotes will amply testify of the careful and precise exegetical work that has been done in this area. Second, the historical testimony should be recognized as coming from those who have held the highest regard for Scripture. Many of the men holding to this position put their lives on the line over Scripture, while those opposing them often tried to mute their testimony with persecution and even death. Furthermore, this Presbyterian Puritan testimony for the regulative principle and against the use of musical instruments in public worship makes up the most totally unanimous historical witness I have come across in any contested area of theology. 
at least equal in clearness to that of the sovereignty of God in salvation, this being the sovereignty of God in worship. Third, in conjunction with all this, it is clear that many of the most abominable innovations in worship were introduced by Rome. The cavil that the reformers were merely reacting to Rome per se, in upholding the regulative principle, is simplistic at best. It is admitted that the earlier reformers were reacting, but righteously reacting against Rome's false and Judaizing hermeneutic. This hermeneutic, drawing from the shadows, figures and types of the abolished ceremony of the Old Testament, Hebrews 7 through 10, justified not only musical instruments in public worship, but also the mass, a false sacrifice, a false priesthood, and any number of other detestable practices. Moreover, it implies that the work of Christ is in fulfillment of, those, of these shadows and types is not satisfactory or complete. Rome's harlot hermeneutic, being as it is radically opposed to sola scriptura, the great cry of the reformers and the reformation, necessitates an unbiblical deviation in worship. This is not surprising. What is surprising is that some of the Romanist innovations in worship, such as instrumental music in public worship, are now being practiced by denominations that profess to hold to the Reformed faith, confessions, and hermeneutic. In conclusion, I will simply state that any reconstruction of the Church must begin with a thorough understanding and the subsequent practice of the regulated principle. To deviate here is to open the floodgates of humanistic innovation in worship, condoning worship devised by a false hermeneutic and therefore the will of man. Arminianism in worship, in short. This is the seedbed of idolatry and a sure route to a shipwrecked church. John Knox's battle to reform Scotland and his call for purity of worship is most instructive here. Knox states, The matter is not of so small importance as some suppose. The question is whether God or man ought to be obeyed in matters of religion. In mouth, All do confess that only God is worthy of sovereignty, but after many, by the instigation of the devil and the presumptuous arrogance of carnal wisdom and worldly policy, have defaced God's holy ordinance, men fear not to follow what laws and common consent, mother of all mischief, have established and commanded. But thus continually I can do nothing but hold and affirm all things polluted, yea, execrable and accursed, which God, by his word, has not sanctified in his religion. God grant you his Holy Spirit rightly to judge. Quoted from Knox's works, volume 6, 14, cited in John Knox, True and False Worship, page 10, published by Presbyterian Heritage Publications, reprinted in 1988. Will worship has proved disastrous in the past, thus we must heed the warnings of history, a history also filled with testimony to the clear, biblically-based hermeneutic of our Presbyterian and Puritan forefathers, proclaiming the sovereignty of God in worship and over every area of life. Quote number 13, another short pamphlet by Reg Barrow. Psalm Singing in Scripture and History The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, 
in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 21, Section 5 Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. James 5, verse 13 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 16 Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 19 This newsletter will be concerned with establishing that the only legitimate historical, confessional, and most importantly, biblical means of addressing God in public worship song is via the psalms. I will grant at the outset that this is a tall order for one short newsletter. But if all I accomplish here is to encourage some to delve further into this important issue, a measure of success will have already been attained. Having observed that much of the Reformed community is not even acquainted with their own heritage of exclusive psalmody, much less the virtually unassailable exegetical strength of this position, I hope that this encouragement to search the scriptures will fall upon hearing ears. Furthermore, Many fine books have been published regarding this topic, some of which are quoted herein, and their perusal will be found to be most rewarding. I am assuming throughout this newsletter that the reader is acquainted with the Presbyterian Reformed Puritan understanding of the regulative principle for worship. The Historical Testimony Psalm singing is one of the great joys of the Christian life. Returning the praises of God to the Almighty in a manner which He has instituted and is pleased by can only lead to great blessing upon those who practice it. The historical testimony reveals to us a most intriguing picture. In it our Lord shows us that at times in which He has been pleased to visit this earth with great light, He has also given the great majority of His human light bearers the grace to practice exclusive psalmody in public worship. In fact, this testimony is so clear that it is rarely contested, often readily conceded even by those opposed to exclusive psalmody. Gary Crampton, in a recent article, is one example when he states that, quote, There is little question that through the centuries of church history, exclusive psalmody has been heavily endorsed by those within the Reformed community. End of quote quoted from the article Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs from the Council of Chalcedon, May 1991, page 9. The Early Church Concerning the Early Church, Bushel notes that, quote, the introduction of uninspired hymns into the worship of the Church was a gradual process, and it was not until the 4th century that the practice became widespread. End of quote quoted from Michael Bushel's The Songs of Zion, published by Crown and Covenant Publications, 1980, page 122. G.I. Williamson further points out that a, quote, second noteworthy fact is that when uninspired hymns first made their appearance, 
it was not among the Orthodox churches, but rather the heretical groups. If the church from the beginning had received authority from the apostles to make and use uninspired hymns, it would be expected that it would have done so, but it did not. Rather, it was among those who departed from the faith, faith that they first appeared. End of quote. Quoted from G.I. Williamson, The Singing of Psalms in the Worship of God, published by Reformed Presbyterian Church of North, Northern Ireland, pages 16 and 17. This historical testimony raises a number of interesting questions for those who claim to adhere to the regulative principle of worship and yet maintain the use of uninspired hymns in public worship. First, if the Psalter had been insufficient, why is there no command to produce new songs for worship, only commands to sing that which was already in existence? Second, if a new manual of praise was necessary, why is it that the apostles did not write any new songs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Third, why can't we find even one fragment or mention of the use of uninspired hymns among Orthodox Christians until they began to be written in reply to the heretical hymns that had already surfaced late in the second century? Footnote the first use of uninspired hymns was found among a heretical group called the Bardesans. Reference Williamson, Singing of Psalms, page 16. End of footnote. Fourth, why was there still strong opposition to the introduction of uninspired hymns well into the 5th century? The Synod of Laodicea, A.D. 343, and the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, both opposed the introduction of uninspired hymns. In addition to this, Bushel states that, quote, as late as the ninth century, we find appeals to the earlier councils in support of a pure psalmody. End of quote. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 125. The Protestant Reformation As we reach the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, we find that the same clericalism which denied the Bible to the common people eventually denied them the Psalter as well and replaced congregational singing with choral productions in a tongue unknown to the vast majority of the worshippers. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 130. As the Reformation progressed, we encounter an almost complete return to exclusive psalmody excluding the Lutherans who had not extended the principle of sola scriptura to their worship. Bushel states, quote, The Scottish reformer John Knox not surprisingly followed Calvin in this matter, and the Reformed Church as a whole followed their lead. This meant that at a stroke the Reformed Church cut itself loose from the entire mass of Latin hymns and from the use of hymnody in general and adopted the Psalms of the Old Testament as the sole medium of church praise. Footnote, Bushel cites Miller Patrick's Four Centuries of Scottish Psalmody, London, 1949, page 9, taken from Songs of Zion, page 131. Continuing with Bushel's quote, Henceforth, to be a Calvinist was to be a psalm singer. For some two and a half centuries, the Reformed churches as a rule sang nothing but the psalms in worship. The metrical psalter was born in Geneva 
where it was nurtured and cherished by all who embraced the principles of Calvinism. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 131 and 132. The importance that Calvin placed on psalm singing can be seen in the following account. Quote, when Calvin and Farrell were banished from Geneva, April 23, 1538, for refusal to submit to the liturgical practices which the council had taken over from Bern, they appealed their case to the synod which met at Zurich on April 29, 1538. At that time they presented a paper drawn up by Calvin containing 14 articles specifying the terms upon which they were willing to return to Geneva. They admitted that they had been too rigid and were willing to concede a number of the disputed practices, but on several other points they stood firm. They insisted on the more frequent administration of the Lord's Supper and the institution of the singing of psalms as a part of public worship. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 134. This was an extremely bold stand for truth, and as we know, Calvin returned to Geneva and psalm singing commenced. As he matured, Calvin insisted on and instituted the practice of the exclusive a cappella singing of psalms in Geneva's public worship. Taken from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 140. Another interesting historical note concerning the development and strength of Calvin's arguments against uninspired hymns is placed in context by the following conclusion reached by Bushel. Quote, Calvin knew, as well as we ought to know, that in the last analysis, a counsel of prudence and a case of conscience amount to the same thing. In worship song, as in other things, God deserves the best that we have to offer. No pious man can in clear conscience offer up one sacrifice of praise to God when prudence dictates that another would be better. Calvin says as much in the passage which we just quoted. How one can read Calvin's conclusion that no one can sing things worthy of God unless he has received them from God himself and yet conclude that he had no scruples of conscience against the use of human songs is quite beyond our comprehension. These sentiments, which Calvin borrows from Augustine on Psalm 31, Sermon 1, and takes as his own, are at the very heart of all arguments against the use of uninspired hymns in the religious worship of God. Calvin's own practice, his insistence on the inspired superiority of the Psalms, and his defense of the regulative principle, all point toward the unavoidable conclusion that Calvin limited himself to the Psalms and a few biblical songs or paraphrases because he thought it would have been wrong to do otherwise. The Reformed Church as a whole followed him in this belief and clung to it tenaciously for over two centuries. Modern Presbyterian worship practice has no claim to Calvin's name at this juncture. Calvin would have wept bitterly to behold the songs sung today in those churches which claimed to have followed in his footsteps. The fact remains that in practice the Genevan reformer was as strict a psalm singer as there ever was. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 141. The Signature of Puritanism Psalm singing has been called the Signature of Puritanism. Quoted from Michael Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 144. 
The English Puritans, being Calvinists and not Lutherans, held to the view that the only proper worship, worship song that was, was that provided of God once and for all in the Book of Psalms and Biblical Canticles. This was Calvin's conviction, and a metrical psalm before and after the sermon was usually the practice at Geneva. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 145. Again, Bushel points out, quote, Our Calvinistic heritage, then, is a psalm-singing heritage, and our Reformed wor- churches, to the extent that they, are, that they have chosen to forsake that heritage, are no longer Calvinistic in their patterns of worship. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 136. The Westminster Confession of Faith A survey of English and Scottish psalmody would not be complete without a reference to the work of the Westminster Assembly. Since the Westminster Standards still have creedal authority in some of the smaller Presbyterian bodies, which, however, are no longer committed to exclusive psalmody, it is worth pointing out here that the Westminster Divines sanction nothing but the use of psalms in the religious worship of God. Taken from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 147. It is here that the weakness of those attempting to uphold the Westminster Confession, along with the use of uninspired hymns in worship, becomes most apparent. The writers of the Confession were well aware of the fact that the regulative principle of scriptural worship demands divine institution for all elements in the public worship service. Thus, to suppose that the writers of the Confession would sanction that which they could not find divine institution in scripture for, and also did not include in the confession under this section, belies a misunderstanding of the regulative principle itself. It imports the Lutheran idea that that which is not forbidden is permissible in public worship, rather than the Calvinistic conviction that only that which is instituted or prescribed by Scripture is permissible. This is a common error today even among Presbyterians, who of all people should know better. In fact, as far as we know, the idea that uninspired hymns were a suitable worship song was not even discussed at the Westminster Assembly, the only disputes of any magnitude being over the practice of lining out the psalms and over whether to use the Psalter version of Rouse or the metaphrase of Barton, taken from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 147. Thus, I think it is fair and can be stated unequivocally that one one is of necessity in violation of both the spirit and letter of the Westminster Confession of Faith outside of the practice of exclusive psalmody regarding public worship song. Bushel summarizes our rundown of Reformed thought. Quote, It is remarkable that, in spite of the absence of any creedal constraints, and in spite of the influence that must have been exerted on the Reformed Church by other communions, where, other, where uninspired hymns flourished, the practice of exclusive psalmody in the Reformed and Presbyterian churches was so uniform for two centuries after the Reformation that there exists today no undisputed evidence of ecclesiastically sanctioned hymnody in their services of worship during that period. Quoted from Bushel, Songs of Zion, page 172. Now it can readily be seen, even in this short historical presentation, 
why those of Reformed persuasion concede the historical argument to the exclusive psalm singers. Sola Scriptura in Worship Since Scripture and not history, as helpful as it is, must be our final authority, it is to the Scripture we will go. Some positions against exclusive psalmody can be dismissed at the outset. First, unless one is ready to institute the use of literal altars, incense, etc. in public worship, the highly symbolic and figurative nature of the book of Revelation can be no safe guide for worship here and now. Footnote One could even do away with marriage trying to use heaven as a guide for that which takes place here and now. See Luke 20 verse 35 Clearly the argument that runs to the book of Revelation for support of worship practices by trying to transfer what is clearly symbolic and typical into that which is literal proves too much and if applied consistently would and has led to ridiculous extremes. See James Glasgow, Heart and Voice, Instrumental Music in the Christian Worship Not Divinely Authorized. End of footnote. Second, it should be noted that most, if not all, arguments against exclusive psalmody are of a negative nature. These anti-psalm arguments could possibly prove the psalm singer's position incorrect, but for those holding to the regulative principle, you cannot prove the positive institution of uninspired hymns by a negative argument against exclusive psalmody. I have personally requested proof for the biblical inspiration of uninspired hymns from one prominent minister who says that he upholds the regulative principle and have yet to receive any answer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.